The Game of Zen explores the often overlooked ways in which professional, personal, and spiritual growth are interrelated. We dive deep into the life teachings of the Buddha and the mindfulness practices of Zen, revealing how they can help us dramatically expand our possibilities for wholehearted work, life, and play. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Game of Zen podcast. I'm really excited today to have a special guest for you today, Pat Croce. Welcome, Pat. We're really thrilled to have you here. Scott, it's great to be with you and Paul. Thanks for inviting me. You got it. So I'm going to start off uh, giving some highlights of Pat's really incredible business career, uh, starting as a physical therapist for the Philadelphia Flyers in the 80s. Uh, Pat was working with many pro athletes from the Philly area at his facility. He then became an athletic trainer for the 76ers, and that led him to working with a lot of uh, the Sixer draft picks and athletes and and help them with their conditioning. So then he founded physical therapy centers, grew them into a chain of 40 stores. He had an exit in 1993. In 1996, Pat put a deal together with Ed Snyder and Comcast to buy the Sixers from Harold Katz. Now, at the time of that purchase, the Sixers were on a downslope and really hadn't had a bunch of good years. And and Pat came in and made it better right away. And it was a very exciting time. We'll get into that more later. They also made a trip to the NBA Finals in 2001. Uh, After that, Pat was a TV commentator for the Summer Olympics and the NBA. Uh, 2005, he opened the St. Augustine Pirate and Treasure Museum in Key West. He's written a bunch of best-selling books, including one called I Feel Great and You Will Too. Uh, many of those on self-help and pirates. <laughs> He's uh, an accomplished real estate investor, a black belt in Taekwondo, and also a cancer survivor. So lots of great stuff. Uh, I met Pat in about 1996. I've been uh, the head statistician for the 76ers for 35 years. And I have to say, when he came to town, it was a great thing. We all loved it and uh, everything got better. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, Pat, it's really nice to meet you. Uh, th- this Pat, this pot is about integrating uh, mindfulness or Zen mindfulness into everyday life, especially in the context of entrepreneurship and business. So to start, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what brought you into meditation practice, into spiritual practice, and what your practice is like these days. What's your Sangha community like? First of all, Paul and Scott, I got to say, I love the name Game of Zen. I love that. It's really good. Uh, And we're all playing it. Most people don't know it, unfortunately. When they start knowing that the game is such a beautiful game and that you're the server and the receiver of every shot, it's just a wonderful journey. I I started meditation in nine years ago, almost. uh, It was the beginning of 2015. And Paul and Scott, it's... It's like one of those in Zen Satori's. Something happened where I read a quote, and the quote had an effect on me. Uh, my mind kind of went to no mind. I went, 
whoa, it's that aha moment that, you know, wow. And the quote was by a man named, an author by the name of Iyer, um, Pico Iyer. He's written a book on stillness and has done TED Talks on stillness. Now, stillness is not, Scott, you knew me. That, that's not something mm -hmm. I would use as an attribute of who I was. However, I was on a trip down to Key West to look at some of our business interests with my wife. And I was, it was January exactly 20th because I, journal, I start journaling that day. I never journaled before that. And I read this in a travel magazine. Uh, this Pico Iyer wrote something to the effect of, Everything occurs in our everything occurs in our mind. Memory, imagination, speculation, interpretation. So if you want to change your life, you just be everything occurs in our heads. Memory, imagination, speculation, interpretation. So if you want to change your life, you best begin by changing your mind. And I gotta tell you guys, I went, it dawned on me. It was like an inquiry. Can you change your mind? I never gave my mind to mind. Never, ever once did I think of, can you change my, I've changed bodies. As you said, Scott, I was a physical therapist and an athletic trainer. I had both worlds and I melged them into what you now know as sports medicine. At then it was kind of novel, but changing your, I could change my opinion, but to change your mind. And so I went to a Ted talk that this fellow Picoire had about stillness and it was just really intriguing for me. And that led me to a second TED Talk on mindfulness. And Paul, I didn't even know what the word was. You talked about mindfulness and entrepreneurship. I had no, never heard the word before. And this is January of 2015. And uh, his name was Andy Podicombe, a former monk who has since I learned, because I used the app initially on meditation, uh, Headspace. And that was the first, so I saw him, he's juggling for 10 minutes and talking and you're talking so smoothly and intricately about just observing your mind. And it took away all the barriers to meditation that I had believed in uh, from the seventies when it was, you know, just chanting TM and smelling like patchouli and cross-legged lotus position, all that stuff that is not necessary unless you want to do it. And then that led me to a third talk because I start getting addicted to this. It's like, well, this is a whole new realm for me. And I should say, I was retired as of January 1 of that year, 2015. I left all my business interests to my son and son-in-law, Michael and Jeff. So I was done. And my wife is saying, we'll see about that, because I was always after more, more. And she would always ask, what are you chasing? I'm thinking, what are you talking about? I'm chasing money. I'm chasing success. I'm chasing fame. I'm chasing. So I had no clue. I had no clue. I was ego painted all over me. I should have had that tattoo right across my head. And so... Uh, this last TED Talk was by Matthew Ricard, the Buddhist monk who, uh, when he was 26, left the prestigious Pasteur Institute to go be with the Dalai Lama and the Tibetans in, uh, in India. And he has since become the uh, French interpreter, brilliant man. His father was like the brilliant philosopher in France. And there's a great book called The Monk and the Philosopher. And it's him and his father discussing philosophy versus Buddhism. And it's a great treatise to Buddhism. I mean, a wonderful. And it happens to be a, best, a year or so later, I dragged Diane to Bhutan, the mountains of Bhutan, so that we could be with him for a retreat for almost a month. Uh, but that's how it got started. And so my meditation, I really thought, Paul, to your question, I thought it had to be a disciplined practice. No different than my 
training, my physical training. I mean, as I was always have trained all my life, the physicality of the body. And so that was always important to me. The mind, ah, not so much. You know, you study when you have to study. You, you give a talk, you prepare, you memorize, whatever you must do to educate, inform, entertain. However, this was something totally different, to just watch your thoughts. Really, the breakthrough for me was to realize that there's a voice in the head. I didn't know there was a freaking thing. I thought that was me. I really thought that was me. And I, I share with people now, I think the first step on the spiritual path, whatever that spiritual path is, the first step is to recognize that you either cause suffering or you suffer. As the Buddha said, it's his first noble truth. Suffering exists in this human experience. But that's really, like, I didn't know I caused suffering. And I, when I was angry, I didn't know that was suffering. It was rightful, righteous indignation. I deserve to be angry. Now, I had no clue that I had a ripple effect and the resonance that was out there was a low vibrational frequency that caused people to walk on eggshells. My wife, my two children, I had no clue. Not a clue in the world. Maybe because the old man used to beat me up when I was a kid, and that was just normal, you know, Italian tough love. But nevertheless, that was probably the first step is recognizing what dukkha is, what suffering, any iteration of it. Just dissatisfaction, frustration, deceit, whatever you want to call it, worry. And then the second one to me was to recognize that this voice in my head, as the Buddhists call it, the monkey mind, this thought swinging from branch to branch and screaming and yelling, and I'm listening to all the chattering as if it's me talking to me. I had no idea that the thoughts weren't true, weren't you, and let them flow through. That's a mnemonic I made for myself to just keep saying, that's not me, in so, in so much that I named it. I named the voice in my head, the wild Irishman, and the angry Italian, the wild Irishman from Braveheart, you know, he's painted up and he looks at hmm. uh, the guy. I don't know about I don't know about me, but you're. <laughs> it was just a this wild Irishman says all kinds of stuff to me, but now I don't listen to it. It just flows hmm. through. But to answer your question, Paul, it started as a disciplined practice, sitting ten minutes. I couldn't even sit still. I thought stillness meant sitting still. I had, I'm telling you, you're talking to a locker room knucklehead. I had no clue what the spiritual path was. I wasn't a spiritual seeker. I didn't know what enlightenment was, awakening, self-realization, moksha, whatever word you want to use. Uh, sunyata, emptiness. I had no, not a clue. So this past nine years has been such a beautiful, loving, happy journey that it just keeps unfolding, unfolding. That's why your podcast is so powerful. If people only realize that if you invest the game of Zen in the game of life, mm -hmm. it changes your life. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, fantastic, Pat. And I, I do want to dig a little bit more into the evolution here because it's, it occurred to me that when you started off down the path of physical therapy, you were in the business of relieving suffering, actually. Uh -huh. And you help people physically, but also you help people with your amazing attitude. I feel great. You know, you weren't just when you went to your rehab center and I did one time for a bad ankle. I felt really good about my ankle, but I just felt good in general because of your positive uh, attitude. So I think that was probably the start of this evolutionary path. Right. When you when you were healing people. 
But I wouldn't have known it then. That's a good point. And thank you, Scott. I was always about PMA. I think my mom passed on her DNA of PMA, a positive mental attitude. I always went at the glass, not even half full, but it was full. It was always full. I mean, that's just, and I made sure that pervaded with all my staff in every center with every patient. I wanted them. I challenged every physical therapist, trainer, exercise physiologist, even the receptionist to make sure that they are the topic of conversation at that patient's dinner table that night. Mm -hmm. That was so important to me that that ripple effect, because every patient, when you saw them, whether it was back pain, a reconstructed knee, a sprained ankle, next car accident, whatever it might be, they are in pain. But as the Buddha said, and this is one of my intentions, Paul, being a Zen master, my, I love whether it was the Buddha or a, a tenet of the Buddhism, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. I love that because if I can transmit the means and ways to let people know that, yeah, you're going to, in this human experience, you are going to suffer pain. However, dukkha suffering, well, and I'm not talking, you know this, I'm not I'm talking to the choir. I'm not talking about grief, sadness, that, because that's rooted in love. I'm talking about the suffering, the psychological suffering rooted in fear, that fear-based suffering. And that's not necessary. And Scott, I didn't know at the time that we were alleviating the fear-based suffering that someone would sit on a treatment table and they would have faith and confidence in what you're, you're placing your hands on their body and palpating and feeling. And that's one of the things. We would have these 10 service commandments using a first name or an honorific if it was a doctor or a you know, someone like the, a, a, a priest or a rabbi. However, touch, touch. And it was before, you know, uh, the me, the whole me phenomenon. But it was like, put your hands on them. Mm -hmm. Shake hands, hug, feel their body and let them feel that you really care about them. Mm -hmm. So you're right. I was I was on the path and didn't even know it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I really also think the next step in your career, too, it was another illustration of you being on the path. Is, and this is the story of how you put together the deal to buy the Sixers. <laughs> you know, I mean, you went from athletic trainer to part owner and president of the Sixers, and you were dealing with some very powerful, uh, famous people in the Philly. So tell us a little bit about how that came about. I'm a good listener. And I, I even to this day, I tell people, we're not in control. The doer, we're the doing. We're, as Haviz would say, the Sufi mystic from the 14th century. I am the hole in the flute that the Christ breath moves through. Listen to this music. It's our responsibility to be the very best hole in the flute and allow the musician to play her music. Allow you know, whoever, Buddha's music, whatever, whoever's music. But it's for us to really be open, empty, available, and aware. And I used to be, it was for me listening. And I heard Harold Katz, the former owner. I went to him with him for lunch. And I just sold my business. I fulfilled the two-year employment contract, but I was done. I didn't like the sitting around meetings. It wasn't me. Let's get stuff done. It was just not me. My 40 centers really were the catalyst. They had 140, but it became Novik care but it's my people still run the company like it's really because we had the systems down the culture the team of spree 
but I didn't know what I wanted to do next. And you know, I was too young. I had money now, but uh, so I was meeting with certain people. One of which was Chuck Barris. Remember the Gong Show? Yeah. One was Ed Snyder, owner of the Flyers. One was Harold Katz, and I knew Harold because I was the physical therapist for the team. Like as you say, the athletic trainer. I was the therapist in charge of all the injuries, whether it was. Charles Barkley's round mound of rebound. I had to get him to a spelt 250 at the time or whomever. So I really wanted to question him on, you know, give me some advice. And I would just question to see. I had no idea that I didn't know how intimate and vital the state of not knowing was. I didn't know that was our true essence. I just was curious. Luckily, I was curious. I had that curious energy my whole life and listened. I was a really good listener. And so Harold, I could see that he was upset about the team and the fans in Philadelphia hated him because the team was lousy and they forgot he won a championship in 83. This is 95 now. And, you know, in Philadelphia, what have you done for me? What wins have you had lately? It's just such a beautiful town with sports fans who are rabid. And when you lose, will be my first year is scary. But when you win, you walk on water. It's, it's that beautiful polarity. And so I could tell that he was um, – dissatisfied with life as it was. And I said, I just blurted out, sell me 10% of the team. I'll bring in my team of spree. I'll bring in positive attitude. I'll take the brunt of everything. I'll be out there. I'll market it. You sit back and just watch and I will help to make this a winner. I guarantee. He said, no, Pat, nah, I'm not ready to sell. When I sell, it'll be all or nothing. Well, <laughs> what I heard, I didn't hear no. I heard all or nothing. So I contacted Ronnie Rubin, who was, I call my Jewish godfather in Philadelphia, who had the connections with everyone who I loved. And he introduced me to Comcast, Brian and Ralph Roberts, the chairman and CEO of Comcast, which are based in Philadelphia. I didn't know them. They didn't know me. I went there on my motorcycle <laughs> and I went up into the top floor. I think I was above the clouds. And so I just told Ronnie was brilliant. So it wasn't really my brilliance. It was Ronnie who he saw that the uh, the cable vision company in New York had bought the Knicks and the Rangers in Madison Square Garden, and it became an entity for them to create a television network. Mm -hmm. Why couldn't Comcast do that in Philadelphia? And they bought it. They bought in. So now it's a couple of days later. I call Harold Katz. I said, Harold, last time we talked, you said it was all or nothing. I said, Well, I'll buy it all. Nice. He goes, no, no, he said, oh, no, I'm not ready to sell yet. And if I was to sell, it'd be at least $125 million because that's what the Toronto franchise was just brand new. Toronto Raptors had just come into the league. Well, I hung up and I'm dancing around. He said a price. Anyone who negotiates, no, you never say the price first, right? Yes, yes, $125 million. Okay. That was gigantic money. However, Look what they're worth now, a couple billion. Yeah. But nevertheless, I went back to Ronnie Rubin and Comcast, $125 million. And so for the next months, I just kept wearing them down. I wore his persistence down with I wore his resistance down with my persistence. And eventually he gave me the option to get the team and the money. And and then the deal went down uh, uh, April 19th, 1996. And it was uh, it was remarkable because here yeah, I'm advanced from the training room to the boardroom, and I could show everyone that 
we can do it. Like Philadelphia can have a can-do attitude and mm-hmm. dreams do come true. And Paul, it was it was pretty wild in Philadelphia at that time because you know people were wondering why are you taking over a last place sickly sucking team? They had only won 18 games of an 82 game schedule the year before. And I said, okay, yeah, that's the opportunity. Well, the first year we only won 22, but you know, bring it on. We're you know, we're slowly but surely, but as Scott said the fifth year we were in the finals against the Lakers for the championship. Brilliant. You know what you've done there, Pat. And you know, uh, growing up in Connecticut, I've, I've been a Knicks fan my whole life. So I'm long suffering and uh, in, and incredibly impressed with what you did with with that franchise. Um, this this quality of listening that was right at the heart of your um, you know transfer of ownership of that you know really stepping into that that plunge of, of taking over is really uh really resonant i think it really uh is is helpful to people to, to understand how important that is to really listen to deeply to what where people are coming from and what's important to them and what you said you said something a little bit ago that i thought was really profound you said you were on the path without knowing you were on the path and i think a lot of people don't recognize that because in some sense we say we're all on the path and it just uh, gets activated more, you know, uh, at certain times in our life. But we, we have this intrinsic, you know, desire to kind of do good and to operate, you know, wholeheartedly, I think, in our lives. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious about the next stage in you taking over the Sixers and how what you did to per, perhaps see what was uh, discordant or unwholesome in the culture and how you how you changed the culture there. Well, that's a great question. And again, it comes down to the Socratic method of asking questions and listening. And I took every employee that was there and I sat them across from me and I gave them a pen. And I said, this is your magic wand. What would you do differently? And I kept those who wanted change and those who didn't, I let go. And I replaced and, you know, but I was lucky because I won the lottery that year and we we picked Allen Iverson, who became a superstar. And But the city of Philadelphia, I should say something, and Scott would know this, that it was my intent. I'm born and bred in Philadelphia, so I wasn't like everyone else. I wasn't transient like a thought or a feeling. I didn't come and go. I was Philadelphia. Uh, that was the essence of this realm of form of me. And I, uh, I made it a point. We only had 3,000 total season ticket holders. It holds, what, 20,000, Scott, something like that? Yeah. I mean, 3,000. So I had, I created a director of fan relations, my buddy Joe Masters. I brought him in from my old business because I know he can deal with everyone and anyone and is a great listener. And we would distribute 50 to 100 tickets to schools, to organizations, Lions clubs, nursing facilities. I didn't care. I wanted everyone from all walks of life, from all classes of life, from the street to the elite, to have the exposure to come into this arena and see this new product. And I wanted every one of our players, 15 players, to pick a charity, pick a community initiative that they would be the ambassador for. That was really important to me. And the Players Union only allows three appearances, mandatory three appearances, But, Paul, if you have a relationship with players, 
then you can ask them to do things without infringing on the union. And they have their own, but let's all go to Children's Hospital Christmas time. We'll get the red hats and we'll bring gifts. And, you know, it was just, I think that we poured so much fuel of goodwill and loving kindness out into the community that when the teams start doing good year three, it ignited and exploded. Yeah. Yeah. The Sixer fans are ready for it. I mean, they're very passionate and they were ready for a change and you came in and changed everything really. And you, you gave it a whole different culture. You even put food back in the press room, which I appreciated. That was well, a- no, Scott, like they would get, yes. check us out, Paul, the press, those <laughs> that are going to talk about you. I was always into marketing, even in physical therapy. I was kind of like poo pooed originally because in physical therapy, you didn't market yourself. It was kind of medicine. I said, why? Churches ring their bells every day to let you know they're there. That's all I'm doing. I'm not saying I'm better than anyone else. So I had all kinds of marketing schemes. Eventually, the APTA invites me to come and speak to them all because now physical therapy is cool and we're on a pedestal. This is the, Why would you not feed the press some righteous? Give them full hot meals. These guys will eat potato chips and Cokes. If you leave yeah. it, to <laughs> I mean, that was the place. You, even when we were bad, even if they're writing negative about you, at least they know you care. There was yes. an element of kindness, right? Yes. So the franchise, all I was, was a, a liaison. It's Philadelphia 76ers. It doesn't say Comcast 76ers. It didn't mm-hmm. say Pat It We're just a liaison, an ambassador. So I wanted the entire community. New Jersey, South Jersey, Philadelphia, Delaware, and fans across the world to see that there was something happening with a very positive slant in Mm -hmm. Philadelphia. Yeah, and so I have another story about how you made people feel great all the time. And this is, uh, so 2001, the Sixers make a run to the finals, and Allen Iverson, game one, makes a corner jump shot and steps over Tyron Lue, and the Sixers are up one nothing, and we're all super excited. Pat, a couple days earlier, actually climbed on top of the Walt Whitman Bridge, which was absolutely nuts, and ha- hung a banner up, and everybody was just fired up. So uh, then the, we lost game two, and we came back to Philly, and we lost game three, game four, and game five. <laughs> Uh, Kobe Bryant from Lower Marion High School and uh, Shaquille O'Neal, they came in and they just ripped it out and they won the title. So after the game, I was um, leaving the stadium about an hour later, said goodbye to a bunch of people. And there was a long hallway that I walked out uh, where the players' families were. And I saw I saw Pat walking at the end of the hallway. And he always said hello and was always very nice to us and, and high-fived and stuff. But this was a very heavy moment. Everybody was crushed. And I was figured, you know, he was bummed out and so I was just going to wave and walk, keep walking. So I'm walking down the hallway and we get there and Pat stops and looks at me and gives me a hug and says, thank you for a great season. It stinks the way we lost, but I really appreciate everything you did this season. And thank you very much. And I got to tell you, Pat, I was blown away by that. I, I just was like, I can't believe you did that. And, and you, you, I was it really made an effect on me. And I just wanted to tell you that I appreciated it. Wow. You sure you weren't dreaming? Uh, I'm, I'm positive. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> Thank like you. Thank you. No, I'm, I'm honored. Thank you that you would remember that. Thank you. I'm sure that one of the reasons you might not remember is because you did that for a lot of people, though. You, you really <laughs> well, made everybody was, feel important. Well, and this this podcast is for entrepreneurs. That's the me becomes a we and it doesn't yeah. change in, in the spiritual path. 
the we might become a me and then the me dissolves into the yeah everything. like so it became like it's full i never said that before but talking to you guys it's full circle like oh my goodness yeah yeah and 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 what what i liked about that too was it didn't matter what level you were on you know you had you were able to deal with people and now so now let's go up to the top level of the organization and dealing with iverson and larry brown Okay. Um, and, and here you have like one of the great players of, of we've ever seen Iverson and you have one of the best coaches ever, but those two guys clashed a lot, you know, Hey, I didn't love practice. Larry Brown wanted everyone to play the right way. Somehow you managed to get these guys together. You put them on the same path. Uh, they ended up loving each other. How did that, how did that come about? And how did your spirituality play into all that? Again, I would not have called it spiritual at the time, although I did I did have a tenant in my heart. If I do my best, God takes care of the rest. So that kind of even flows into the now. However, that was my only tenant. That was the only spirituality, if you were to call it spirituality, I didn't know really about our true nature. I didn't know the essence of presence. I didn't know any of that. However, I think it all started on the path to the path to the path, Paul. I'm mm. talking about back in high school and college, hanging on the corner with a gang of guys. Well, you know, it could be six guys. It could be eight guys, ten guys. There was conflict, and I would always moderate. And I people would listen to me, not because I had the right words, but because I could kick their ass. <laughs> and always a great fighter, and then even a martial artist that, proceeded into international cry tournaments, they knew that, you know, if you're going to play that game, we're going to play really hard. And I never fought with ever, any of my buddies ever. However, I, I was always a moderator and tried to bring it down to a, a, less, a less intense energy level. And at that, Iverson, Larry Brown, they wanted to... I got a call the night before they were coming back from Detroit. It was a blowout game, and he got and Allen Iverson got benched. Paul, he got benched, and Allen Iverson doesn't like to get benched, and he might have mf'd the coach. And the coach called me that night. He never calls me, and he said he wanted him traded the next day. And Iverson AI Bubba Chuck never calls me, never. Mm-hmm. And he called me and said, "I want him fired. Mm-hmm. I want that coach fired." So I said, we'll meet in the morning before practice. And we met in the morning and the whole team's outside the big window to the conference room and myself and a Billy King in there, the general, the general manager. And they both sit down and it was really heated, awkward. This was not the silence we use in meditation where it's just pure expansion of the heart. This was a low vibrational frequency that you could just feel the cloud of black energy and whatever i said it came about to be that you two are looking at replicas of yourself you don't realize this you both love the game you love to win the way you do it is your own way and i respect that let me tell you he's not getting fired and you're not getting traded so put that on the table and now how are we going to work that out and Iverson's like this, and Larry Brown's not saying anything. He doesn't even want to be in this meeting. He thinks that I brought him down to a, a lesser level. And then eventually I went into how 
would you feel, Alan? It was all questioning and, and direct experiencing. Paul, you know, putting it in a, that, that teacher or student mode. How would you feel if someone you pulled off the court MF'd you in front of the whole audience and you ignored them and you disrespected them? And Larry Brown's nodding his head. And I said, Larry, how would you feel if you were a player and you said, sit down? And the player felt that you were saying, sit down, N-word, similar to when he was in prison that year, that you were more like the white game warden. Mm -hmm. And Larry Brown kind of, whoa. So both of them had this glimpse of reality, like their mind stopped them. Whoa. And I know in Zen you call those satori's or no mind moments or I'm not saying it's enlightening, but it is consciousness recognizing itself outside this form. Alan Iverson black, Larry Brown white, Alan Iverson young, Larry Brown old, Alan Iverson hip hop, Larry Brown doo wop, you know, whatever you want to say. They were so different in a sense, but it was the similarities that I was bringing to the table. And Eventually, Larry, Alan Iverson got up, walked around, and he hugged him. He hugged him. And that was really, that was, I think that was the fourth year, Scott, at the end of fourth year or beginning of first year, fifth year. I'm not sure, but it was never, ever a problem again. I mean, they didn't have another problem until I left. And then obviously they might have had some problems, but I wasn't there. Yeah. It, it's a really powerful story, Pat. It's really amazing. And you activated a really profound energy of, of connection in that. And you've said a few things about the aftermath of that that I, that I wanted to ask you about. I guess you said um, Larry, even afterwards, felt a little resentment towards you for forcing that thing to happen. I think he was less comfortable with it, perhaps. Stay there, Stay there Paul. Let me interrupt. So mm -hmm. much so that I go home after practice. They resume practice. And... Uh, I get a yell in the house, and we had phones then. Then my wife says, Larry Brown's on the phone. Oh, I think he's, he's all psyched that this was resolved. He was so mad at me. Hmm. Don't you ever put me in a situation where I'm at the level of the – don't you – it was – I was I was stunned. I was shocked. I went from elation to utter befuddlement. I couldn't – and – I mean, so that was the beginning of a crack in our relationship. But it didn't matter because I, I didn't allow it to affect me. I wasn't going to judge him. He just felt that in his old ways, he's a coach and the players are below him or beneath him. And, and I, but, it, but to your point, it, it was. And, and what you said uh, to him at, at that point, and I don't know if you remember this, but I did pick this up from an interview that, that you had done a number of years ago. You said, Larry, you didn't have a relationship with Alan, there just wasn't anything there. And now you have a relationship. And that was, that's incredibly profound to me because it speaks to our interdependence that we, we always have a relationship. We're always in relationship with others. So to be aware of that is the first step of, you know, healing and thriving, thriving, you know, lives. Another thing you said was that you, you peel the onion down. You wanted to get down below the layers to the heart of who these people were and the heart of the matter with respect to this conflict. And, and this is a very Zen thing is that we have these layers of conditioning that kind of get in the way. So I felt that to be a real um, kind of intuitive spiritual insight 
on your part to get below the layers of conditioning. And I wonder how you uh, work with that nowadays. Is it still a challenge to, because we're all, everybody has layers of conditioning, even, even ourselves. So how, how do we uh, make sure we're operating at the deepest level of ourselves and, and touching the deepest level of others? And that's a good question, Paul. And you know, the root of all dukkha, of all suffering is the belief, is the attachment to the belief, Dahatma Bodhi in, in Sanskrit, the belief that I am a separate consciousness, that I am a separate body mind from you. It's the, it's the root. However, we deal with all of the leaves and the branches and everything else but the root, because the root has to be understood in such a way that, well, if I'm not this body mind, then who am I? Right. That's exactly right. What a great question. That Atma Vachara, that inquiry. Yes. However, you know, that takes time. That really takes time for people to inquire. But you realize that now to answer your question, there's tools, techniques, sadhanas that we use, that you use, that give people a chance to realize our true nature is not just our thoughts and feelings, sensations and perceptions, they come and go. That which is never changing and ever present is aware. Awareness, the presence of being aware. And I call this my Zen finger. Uh, with all respect to you, I go. And I think it was Osho, Osho in the ninth century, the, the Zen monk, the Zen master, who first did it. When they'd say, what is Zen? He'd go. And then they would stop and yeah, that's it. That is it. Just pure being aware. And then it's a, I think when you can take them to realize that they are what they are not. And if they're not their thoughts and feelings, and these thoughts just come and go, they're neutral. They're no enemy to a thought. However, when you attach the movie of me to it, the me, and you become a protagonist in the movie to this thought, then that thought becomes a belief. And that belief can fuel and stimulate those neutral sensations in the body, which then become feelings. And then the feelings can ignite emotions. And then it's just a vicious circle. So if we can break into that, knowing that you're not the thoughts, you're not the sensations that purge and merge into beliefs and feelings, then, well, we can let them all come and go. And the only way that I know to do that is to advise in a meditation. I think mm -hmm. the meditation practice to me is the pinnacle because if in a quiet moment you can see thoughts come and go and feelings come and go, agitation come and go, and everything, everything arises perfectly, just let it come and go. Let it build your let it go muscle, as Sharon Salzberg would say. Then when you come in time of stress or anxiety, well, wow, then let's see how this works for you. I guess the hardest step after that would be to that awareness or consciousness that I truly am, that sunyata, that emptiness, fullness, however you want to describe it with words, which are clumsy, to realize the nature of that. Now, that, that takes some work. You know that. And that's really, once they get there, then game's over. <laughs> the game's over. The game yeah. of Zen is over. This concludes part one of our fantastic interview with Pat Croce. We'll be back next week with part two. If you enjoyed this chat, please comment, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
And don't forget to check out the Zen at Work website and sign up for Sensei Paul's newsletter. Links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Thank you for joining us on this exploration into Zen Buddhism and its transformative influence on work and life. We hope you'll subscribe, share, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. May your journey be one of continuous growth and mindful living. From all of us here at Game of Zen, wishing you peace and prosperity on your path ahead. Thank you.